The Element How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything by Ken Robinson, PhD, with Lou Aronica. Narrated by Ken Robinson, PhD. Copyright 2009 by Ken Robinson. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with Viking Penguin, a member of Penguin Group USA Inc., and it was produced in the year 2009 by Tantor Media Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. This book is dedicated to my sister and brothers, Ethelina, Keith, Derek, Ian, John and Neil, and to our extraordinary mum and dad, Ethel and Jim, to my son James and my daughter Kate, and to my soulmate Terry. This book is for you, for all your many talents and for the endless love and laughter we put into each other's lives. It's when I'm with you and the ones you love that I really am in my element. Acknowledgements They say it takes a village to raise a baby. Rearing a book like this takes a small metropolis. I know I have to say I can't thank everyone, and I really can't. I do have to single out a few people, though, for special service awards. First and foremost, my wife and partner Terry. This book simply wouldn't be in your hands but for her. Its origins were in an off-the-cuff remark I made at a conference a few years ago. I had just told the Gillian Lynn story, which now opens chapter one of the book. In passing, I said that one of these days I was going to write a book about stories like that. I've since learned not to say these things out loud in front of Terry. She asked me when did I have in mind. Soon, I said. Definitely soon. After a few months had passed, she started it herself. Wrote the proposal, worked on the ideas, did some of the initial interviews, and then found the agent Peter Miller, who was to help make it happen. With the foundations laid so solidly, and the escape routes closed so firmly, I finally kept my word, and got on with the book. I want to thank Peter Miller, our literary agent, for all his great work, not least in bringing Lou Aronica and me together. I travel a lot, too much really, and producing a book like this needs time, energy, and collaboration. Lou was the ideal partner. He is seriously professional, sage, judicious, creative, and patient. He was the calm centre of the project as I orbited the earth, sending notes, drafts, and second thoughts from airports and hotel rooms. Between us, we also managed to steer a successful course between the often comic conflicts of British and American English. Thank you, Lou. My son James gave up his precious final student summer to pore over archives, journals and internet sites, checking facts, dates and ideas. Then he debated virtually every idea in the book with me until I was worn out. Nancy Allen worked for several months on research issues under increasingly tight deadlines. My daughter Kate had a wonderfully creative collaboration with Nick Egan to produce a unique website that shows all the other work we're now doing. Our assistant, Andrea Hanna, worked tirelessly to orchestrate the myriad moving parts in a project like this. We wouldn't still be standing up without her. As the book was taking shape, we were extremely fortunate to have the wise and creative counsel of our publisher, Catherine Court at Viking Penguin. Her benign form of intimidation also ensured that we got the book finished in decent time. Finally, I have to thank all of those whose stories illuminate this book. Many of them spent precious hours amid very busy lives to talk freely and passionately about the experiences and ideas that lie at the heart of the element. Many others sent me moving letters and emails, 
Their stories show that the issues in this book reach into the core of our lives. I thank all of them. It's usual to say, of course, that whatever good things other people have contributed, any faults that remain in the book are my responsibility alone. That seems a bit harsh to me, but I suppose it's true. Introduction A few years ago, I heard a wonderful story, which I'm very fond of telling. An elementary school teacher was giving a drawing class to a group of six-year-old children. At the back of the classroom sat a little girl, who normally didn't pay much attention in school. In the drawing class, she did. For more than 20 minutes, the girl sat with her arms curled around her paper, totally absorbed in what she was doing. The teacher found this fascinating. Eventually, she asked the girl what she was drawing. Without looking up, the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. Surprised, the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. The girl said, they will in a minute. I love this story because it reminds us that young children are wonderfully confident in their own imaginations. Most of us lose this confidence as we grow up. Ask a class of first graders which of them thinks they're creative, and they'll all put their hands up. Ask a group of college seniors the same question, and most of them won't. I believe passionately that we're all born with tremendous natural capacities, and that we lose touch with many of them as we spend more time in the world. Ironically, one of the main reasons this happens is education. The result is that too many people never connect with their true talents, and therefore don't know what they're really capable of achieving. In that sense, they don't know who they really are. I travel a great deal and work with people all around the world. I work with education systems, with corporations, and with not-for-profit organizations. Everywhere, I meet students who are trying to figure out their futures and don't know where to start. I meet concerned parents who are trying to help them, but instead often steer them away from their true talents on the assumption that their kids have to follow conventional routes to success. I meet employers who are struggling to understand and make better use of the diverse talents of the people in their companies. Along the way, I've lost track of the numbers of people I've met who have no real sense of what their individual talents and passions are. They don't enjoy what they're doing now, but they have no idea what actually would fulfil them. On the other hand, I also meet people who have been highly successful in all kinds of fields, who are passionate about what they do, and couldn't imagine doing anything else. I believe that their stories have something important to teach all of us about the nature of human capacity and fulfilment. As I've spoken at events around the world, I've found it's real stories like these, at least as much as statistics and the opinions of experts, that persuade people that we all need to think differently about ourselves and about what we're doing with our lives about how we're educating our children and how we're running our organisations. This book contains a wide range of stories about the creative journeys of very different people. Many of them were interviewed specifically for this book. These people tell how they first came to recognise their unique talents and how they make a highly successful living from doing what they love. What strikes me is that often their journeys haven't been conventional. They've been full of twists, turns and surprises. Often those I interviewed said that our conversations for the book revealed ideas and experiences they hadn't discussed in this way before. The moment of recognition, the evolution of their talents, the encouragement or discouragement of family, friends and teachers, what made them forge ahead in the face of numerous obstacles. Their stories aren't fairy tales though. All of these people are leading complicated and challenging lives. Their personal journeys have not been easy or straightforward. They've all had their disasters as well as their triumphs. None of them 
has perfect lives. But all of them regularly experience moments that feel like perfection. Their stories are often fascinating. But this book isn't really about them. It's about you. My aim in writing it is to offer a richer vision of human ability and creativity, and of the benefits to all of us of connecting properly with our individual talents and passions. This book is about issues that are of fundamental importance in our lives, and in the lives of our children, our students, and the people we work with. I use the term the element to describe the place where the things we love to do and the things we are good at come together. I believe it's essential that each of us find his or her element, not simply because it will make us more fulfilled, but because as the world evolves, the very future of our communities and institutions will depend on it. The world is changing faster than ever in our history. Our best hope for the future is to develop a new paradigm of human capacity to meet a new era of human existence. We need to evolve a new appreciation of the importance of nurturing human talent along with an understanding of how talent expresses itself differently in every individual. We need to create environments in our schools, in our workplaces and in our public offices where every person is inspired to grow creatively. We need to make sure that all people have the chance to do what they should be doing, to discover the element in themselves and in their own way. This book is a hymn to the breathtaking diversity of human talent and passion, and to our extraordinary potential for growth and development. It's also about understanding the conditions under which human talents will flourish or fade. It's about how we can all engage more fully in the present, and how we can prepare in the only possible way for a completely unknowable future. To make the best of ourselves and of each other, we urgently need to embrace a richer conception of human capacity. We need to embrace the element. Chapter 1. The Element Gillian was only eight years old, but her future was already at risk. Her schoolwork was a disaster, at least as far as her teachers were concerned. She turned in assignments late, her handwriting was terrible, and she tested poorly. Not only that, she was a disruption to the entire class, one minute fidgeting noisily, the next staring out the window, forcing the teacher to stop the class to pull Gillian's attention back, and the next doing something to disturb the other children around her. Gillian wasn't particularly concerned about any of this. She was used to being corrected by authority figures and really didn't see herself as a difficult child. But the school was very concerned. This came to a head when the school wrote to her parents. The school thought Gillian had a learning disorder of some sort, and that it might be more appropriate for her to be in a school for children with special needs. All of this took place in the 1930s. I think now they'd say she had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and they'd put her on Ritalin or something similar. But the ADHD epidemic hadn't been invented at the time. It wasn't an available condition. People didn't know they could have that and had to get by without it. Gillian's parents received the letter from the school with great concern, and they sprang to action. Gillian's mother put her daughter in her best dress and shoes, tied her hair in ponytails, and took her to a psychologist for assessment, fearing the worst. Gillian told me that she remembers being invited into a large oak-panelled room with leather-bound books on the shelves. Standing in the room next to a large desk was an imposing man in a tweed jacket. He took Gillian to the far end of the room and sat her down on a huge leather sofa. Gillian's feet didn't quite touch the floor, and the setting made her wary. Nervous about the impression she'd make, she sat on her hands so she wouldn't fidget. The psychologist went back to his desk, and for the next twenty minutes he asked Gillian's mother about the difficulties Gillian was having at school, 
and the problems the school said she was causing. While he didn't direct any of his questions at Gillian, he watched her carefully the entire time. This made Gillian extremely uneasy and confused. Even at this tender age, she knew that this man would have a significant role in her life. She knew what it meant to attend a special school, and she didn't want anything to do with that. She genuinely didn't feel that she had any real problems, but everyone else seemed to believe she did. Given the way her mother answered the questions, it was possible that even she felt this way. Maybe, Gillian thought, they were right. Eventually, Gillian's mother and the psychologist stopped talking. The man rose from his desk, walked to the sofa, and sat next to the little girl. Gillian, he said, you've been very patient, and I thank you for that. But I'm afraid you'll have to be patient for a little longer. I need to speak to your mother privately now. We're going to go out of the room for a few minutes. Don't worry, we won't be very long. Gillian nodded apprehensively, and the two adults left her sitting there on her own. But as he was leaving the room, the psychologist leaned across his desk and turned on the radio. As soon as they were in the corridor outside the room, the doctor said to Gillian's mother, "'Just stand here for a moment and watch what she does.' There was a window into the room, and they stood to one side of it where Gillian couldn't see them. Nearly immediately, Gillian was on her feet, moving around the room to the music. The two adults stood watching quietly for a few minutes, transfixed by the girl's grace. Anyone would have noticed there was something natural, even primal, about Gillian's movements, just as they would surely have caught the expression of utter pleasure on her face. At last the psychologist turned to Gillian's mother and said, "'You know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick. She's a dancer. Take her to a dance school.' I asked Gillian what happened then. She said her mother did exactly what the psychiatrist suggested. "'And I can't tell you how wonderful it was,' she told me. "'I walked into this room, and it was full of people like me. "'People who couldn't sit still. "'People who had to move to think. "'She started going to the dance school every week, "'and she practised at home every day. "'Eventually she auditioned for the Royal Ballet School in London, "'and they accepted her. "'She went on to join the Royal Ballet Company itself, "'becoming a soloist and performing all over the world.' When that part of her career ended, she formed her own musical theatre company and produced a series of highly successful shows in London and New York. Eventually, she met Andrew Lloyd Webber and created with him some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history, including Cats and Phantom of the Opera. Little Gillian, the girl with a high-risk future, became known to the world as Gillian Lynn, one of the most accomplished choreographers of our time, someone who's brought pleasure to millions and earned millions of dollars. This happened because someone looked deep into her eyes, someone who'd seen children like her before and knew how to read the signs. Someone else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down. But Gillian wasn't a problem child. She didn't need to go away to a special school. She just needed to be who she really was. Unlike Gillian, Matt always did fine in school, getting decent grades and passing all of the important tests. However, he found himself tremendously bored. In order to keep himself amused, he started drawing during classes. I would draw constantly, he told me. And I got so good at drawing that I was able to draw without looking, so that the teacher would think that I was paying attention. For him, art class was an opportunity to pursue his passion with abandon. We were colouring in colouring books, and I thought, I can never colour within the lines. Oh no, I can't be bothered. This kicked up to another level entirely when he got to high school. There was an art class, and the other kids would just sit there. The art teacher was bored, and the art supplies were just sitting there too. Nobody was using them. 
so I did as many paintings as I could, thirty paintings sometimes in a single class. I'd look at each painting, what it looked like, and then I'd title it. Dolphin in the Seaweed. Okay, next. I remember doing tons of paintings, until they finally realised I was using up so much paper that they stopped me. There was the thrill of making something that didn't exist before. As my technical prowess increased, it was fun to be able to go, oh, that actually looks vaguely like what it's supposed to look like. But then I realised that my drawing wasn't getting much better, so I started concentrating on stories and jokes. I thought that was more entertaining. Matt Groening, known around the world as the creator of The Simpsons, found his true inspiration in the work of other artists whose drawings lack technical mastery, but who combine their distinctive art styles with inventive storytelling. What I found encouraging was looking at people who couldn't draw who were making their living, like James Thurber. John Lennon was also very important to me. His books, in his own right and expanded in the works, are full of his own really crummy drawings, but funny prose poems and crazy stories. I went through a stage where I tried to imitate John Lennon. Robert Crumb was also a huge influence. His teachers and his parents, even his father, who was a cartoonist and filmmaker, tried to encourage him to do something else with his life. They suggested he go to college and find a more solid profession. In fact, until he got to college, a non-traditional school without grades or required classes, he'd found only one teacher who truly inspired him. My first grade teacher saved paintings I did in class, he said. She actually saved them, I mean, for years. I was touched because there's like, you know, hundreds of kids going through here. Her name is Elizabeth Hoover. I named a character in The Simpsons after her. The disapproval of authority figures left him undeterred, because in his heart, Matt knew what truly inspired him. I knew as a kid, when we were playing and making up stories and using little figurines, dinosaurs and stuff like that, that I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I saw grown-ups with briefcases going into office buildings, and I thought, I can't do that. This is all I really want to do. I was surrounded by other kids who felt the same way, but gradually they peeled off and they got more serious. For me, it was always about playing and storytelling. I understood the series of stages I was supposed to go through. You know, you go to high school, you go to college, you get a credential, and then you go out and get a good job. I knew it wasn't going to work for me. I knew I was going to be drawing cartoons forever. I found friends who had the same interests at school. We hung out together, and we'd draw comics and then bring them to school and show them to each other. As we got older and more ambitious, we started making movies. It was great. It partly compensated for the fact that we felt very self-conscious socially. Instead of staying at home on the weekend, we went out and made movies. Instead of going to the football games on Friday night, we would go to the local university and watch underground films. I made a decision that I was going to live by my wits. And by the way, I didn't think it was going to work. I thought I was going to be working at some lousy job, doing something that I hated. My vision was that I'd be working in a tyre warehouse. I have no idea why I thought it was a tyre warehouse. I thought I'd be rolling tyres around and then on my break I'd be drawing cartoons. Things turned out rather differently from that. Matt moved to LA, eventually placed his comic strip Life in Hell with LA Weekly, and he began to make a name for himself. This led to an invitation from the Fox Broadcasting Company to create short animated segments for the Tracy Ullman show. During his pitch to Fox, he invented The Simpsons on the spot. He literally had no idea he was going to do this before he went into the meeting. The show evolved into a half-hour programme and has been running on Fox every Sunday for 19 years as of this writing. In addition, 
It's generated movies, comic books, toys, and countless other merchandise. In other words, it's a pop culture empire. Yet none of this would have happened if Matt Groening had listened to those who told him he needed to pursue a real career. Not all successful people disliked school or did badly there. Paul was still a high school student, one with very good grades, when he walked into a University of Chicago lecture hall for the first time. He didn't realise as he did so that the college was one of the leading institutions in the world for the study of economics. He only knew that it was close to his home. Minutes later, he was born again, as he wrote in an article. That day's lecture, he said, was on Malthus's theory that human populations would reproduce like rabbits until their density per acre of land reduced their wage to a bare subsistence level where an increased death rate came to equal the birth rate. So easy was it to understand all the simple differential equation stuff that I suspected, wrongly, that I was missing out on some mysterious complexity. At that point, Dr Paul Samuelson's life as an economist began. It's a life he describes as pure fun. One that's seen him serve as a professor at MIT, become president of the International Economic Association, write several books, including the best-selling economics textbook of all time, and hundreds of papers, have a significant impact on public policy, and, in 1970, become the first American to win the Nobel Prize in economics. As a precocious youngster, he said, I had always been good at logical manipulations and puzzle-solving IQ tests. So if economics was made for me, it can be said that I too was made for economics. Never underestimate the vital importance of finding early in life the work that for you is play. This turns possible underachievers into happy warriors. Three stories, one message. Jinin Lin, Matt Groening and Paul Samuelson are three very different people with three very different stories. What unites them is one undeniably powerful message, that each of them found high levels of achievement and personal satisfaction upon discovering the thing that they naturally do well and that also ignites their passions. I call stories like theirs epiphany stories because they tend to involve some level of revelation, a way of dividing the world into before and after. These epiphanies utterly change their lives, giving them direction and purpose and sweeping them up in a way that nothing else had. They, and the other people you'll meet in this book, have identified the sweet spot for themselves. They have discovered their element, the place where the things you love to do and the things that you're good at come together. The element is a different way of defining our potential. It manifests itself differently in every person, but the components of the element are universal. Gillian Lynn, Matt Groening and Paul Samuelson have accomplished a great deal in their lives but they're not alone in being capable of that. Why they're special is that they've found what they love to do and they're actually doing it. They have found their element. In my experience, most people have not. Finding your element is essential to your well-being and ultimate success, and by implication, to the health of our organizations and the effectiveness of our educational systems. I believe strongly that if we can each find our element, we all have the potential for much higher achievement and fulfilment. I don't mean to say that there's a dancer, a cartoonist or a Nobel winning economist in each of us. I mean that we all have distinctive talents and passions that can inspire us to achieve far more than we may imagine. Understanding this changes everything. It also offers us our best and perhaps our only promise for genuine and sustainable success 
in a very uncertain future. Being in our element depends on finding our own distinctive talents and passions. Why haven't most people found this? One of the most important reasons is that most people have a very limited conception of their own natural capacities. This is true in several ways. The first limitation is in our understanding of the range of our capacities. We're all born with extraordinary powers of imagination, intelligence, feeling, intuition, spirituality, and of physical and sensory awareness. For the most part, we use only a fraction of these powers, and some not at all. Many people have not found their element because they don't understand their own powers. The second limitation is in our understanding of how all of these capacities relate to each other holistically. For the most part, we think that our minds, our bodies and our feelings and relationships with others operate independently of each other, like separate systems. Many people have not found their element because they don't understand their true organic nature. The third limitation is in our understanding of how much potential we have for growth and change. For the most part, people seem to think that life is linear, that our capacities decline as we grow older, and that opportunities we've missed are gone forever. Many people haven't found their element because they don't understand their constant potential for renewal. This limited view of our own capacities can be compounded by our peer groups, by our culture, and by our own expectations of ourselves. A major factor for everyone, though, is education. One size does not fit all. Some of the most brilliant, creative people I know did not do well at school. Many of them didn't really discover what they could do and who they really were until they'd left school and recovered from their education. I was born in Liverpool, England, and in the 1960s I went to a school there, the Liverpool Collegiate. On the other side of the city was the Liverpool Institute. One of the pupils there was Paul McCartney. Paul spent most of his time at the Liverpool Institute fooling around. Rather than studying intently when he got home, he devoted the majority of his hours out of school to listening to rock music and learning the guitar. This turned out to be a smart choice for him, especially after he met John Lennon at a school fete in another part of the city. They impressed each other and eventually decided to form a band with George Harrison and later Ringo Starr called The Beatles. That was a very good idea. By the mid-1980s, both the Liverpool Collegiate and the Liverpool Institute had closed. The building stood empty and derelict. Both have since been revived in very different ways. Developers have turned my old school into luxury apartments, a huge change since the Collegiate was never about luxury when I was there. The Liverpool Institute has now become the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, LIPA one of Europe's leading centres for professional training in the arts. The lead patron is Sir Paul McCartney. The old, dusty classrooms where he spent his teenage years daydreaming now contain students from all over the world doing the very thing he dreamed about, making music, as well as those learning to take the stage in a wide variety of ways. I had a role in the early development of Lipper, and on its 10th anniversary, the directors rewarded me with a companionship of the school. I went back to Liverpool to receive the award from Sir Paul at the annual commencement. I gave a speech to graduating students about some of the ideas that are now in this book. The need to find your passion and talents. The fact that education often doesn't help people to do that. And that it often has the opposite effect. Sir Paul spoke that day as well. And he responded directly to what I'd been saying. He said that he'd always loved music, but that he never enjoyed music lessons at school. 
His teachers thought they could convey an appreciation for music by making kids listen to crackling records of classical compositions. He found this just as boring as he found everything else at school. He told me he went through his entire education without anyone noticing that he had any musical talent at all. He even applied to join the choir of Liverpool Cathedral and was turned down. They said he wasn't good enough. Really? How good was that choir? How good can a choir be? Ironically, the very choir that rejected the young McCartney ultimately staged two of his classical pieces. Paul McCartney is not alone in having his talents overlooked in school. Apparently, organisers kept Elvis Presley from joining his school's glee club. They said his voice would ruin their sound. Like the choir at the Liverpool Cathedral, the glee club had standards to uphold. We all know the tremendous heights the glee club scaled once they'd managed to keep Elvis out. A few years ago, I spoke at a number of events on creativity with John Cleese from Monty Python. I asked John about his education. Apparently he did very well at school, but not at comedy, the thing that actually shaped his life. He said that he went all the way from kindergarten to Cambridge, and none of his teachers noticed that he had any sense of humour at all. As since then, quite a few people have decided that he does. If these were isolated examples, there'd be little point in mentioning them. But they're not. Many of the people you'll meet in this book didn't do well at school or enjoy being there. Of course, at least as many people do well in their schools and love what the education system has to offer. But too many graduate or leave early, unsure of their real talents and equally unsure of what direction to take next. Too many people feel that what they're good at isn't valued by schools. Too many think they're not good at anything. I've worked for most of my life in and around education, and I don't believe that this is the fault of individual teachers. Obviously, some should be doing something else, and as far from young minds as possible. But there are plenty of good teachers, and many brilliant ones. Most of us can look back to particular teachers who inspired us and changed our lives. These teachers excelled and reached us. But they did this often in spite of the basic culture and mindset of public education. There are significant problems with that culture, and I don't see nearly enough improvements. In many systems, the problems are getting worse. This is true just about everywhere. When my family and I moved from England to America, our two children, James and Kate, started at high school in Los Angeles. In some ways, the system was very different from the one we knew in the UK. For example, the children had to study some subjects they'd never taken before, like American history. Well, we don't really teach American history in Britain. We suppress it. Our policy is to draw a veil across the whole sorry episode. We arrived in the United States four days before Independence Day, just in time to watch others revel in having thrown the British out of the country. Now that we've been here a few years and know what to expect, we tend to spend Independence Day indoors with the blinds closed, flicking through old photographs of the Queen. In many ways, though, the education system in the United States is very similar to that in the United Kingdom, and in most other places in the world. Three features stand out in particular. First, there is the preoccupation with certain sorts of academic ability. I know that academic ability is very important, but school systems tend to be preoccupied with certain sorts of critical analysis and reasoning, particularly with words and numbers. Important as those skills are, there is much more to human intelligence than that. I'll discuss this at length in the next chapter. The second feature is the hierarchy of subjects. At the top of the hierarchy are mathematics, science and language skills. In the middle are the humanities, at the bottom are the arts. In the arts, there is another hierarchy. Music and visual arts normally have a higher status than theatre and dance. 
In fact, more and more schools are cutting the art out of the curriculum altogether. A huge high school might have only one fine arts teacher, and even elementary school children get very little time to simply paint and draw. The third feature is the growing reliance on particular types of assessment. Children everywhere are under intense pressure to perform at higher and higher levels on a narrow range of standardised tests. Why are school systems like this? The reasons are cultural and historical. Again, we'll discuss this at length in a later chapter, and I'll say what I think we should do to transform education. The point here is that most systems of mass education came into being relatively recently, in the 18th and 19th centuries. These systems were designed to meet the economic interests of those times, times that were dominated by the Industrial Revolution in Europe and America. Math, science and language skills were essential for jobs in the industrial economies. The other big influence in education has been the academic culture of universities, which has tended to push aside any sort of activity that involves the heart, the body, the senses and a good portion of our actual brains. The result is that school systems everywhere inculcate us with a very narrow view of intelligence and capacity and overvalue particular sorts of talent and ability. In doing so, they neglect others that are just as important and they disregard the relationships between them in sustaining the vitality of our lives and communities. This stratified, one-size-fits-all approach to education marginalises all of those who do not take naturally to learning this way. Very few schools, and even fewer school systems in the world, teach dance every day as a formal part of their curricula, as they do with math. Yet we know that many students only become engaged when they're using their bodies. For instance, Gillian Lynn told me that she did better at all of her subjects once she discovered dance. She was one of those people who had to move to think. Unfortunately, most kids don't find someone to play the role the psychologist played in Gillian's life, especially now. When they fidget too much, they're medicated and told to calm down. The current systems also put severe limits on how teachers teach and on how students learn. Academic ability is very important, but so are other ways of thinking. People who think visually might love a particular topic or subject, but won't realise it if their teachers only presented in one non-visual way. Yet our education systems increasingly encourage teachers to teach students in a uniform fashion. To appreciate the implications of the epiphany stories told here, and indeed to seek out our own, we need to rethink radically our view of intelligence. These approaches to education are also stifling some of the most important capacities that young people now need to make their way in the increasingly demanding world of the 21st century, the powers of creative thinking. Our systems of education put a high premium on knowing the single right answer to a question. In fact, with programmes like No Child Left Behind, a federal programme that seeks to improve the performance of American public schools by making them more accountable for meeting mandated performance levels, and its insistence that all children from every part of the country hew to the same standards, we're putting a greater emphasis than ever before on conformity and finding the right answers. All children start their school careers with sparkling imaginations, fertile minds and a willingness to take risks with what they think. When my son was four, his preschool put on a production of The Nativity Story. During the show, there was a wonderful moment when three little boys came on stage as the three wise men, carrying their gifts of gold, frankincense and mare. I think the second boy lost his nerve a little and went out of sequence. The third boy had to improvise a line he hadn't learned or paid much attention to during rehearsals, given that he was four. The first boy said, I bring you gold. The second boy said, I bring you mare. 
The third boy said, Frank sent this. Who's Frank, you think? The thirteenth apostle? The lost book of Frank? What I loved about this was that it illustrated that when they're very young, kids aren't particularly worried about being wrong. If they aren't sure what to do in a particular situation, they'll just have a go at it and see how things turn out. This is not to suggest that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. Sometimes being wrong is just being wrong. But what is true is that if you're not prepared to be wrong, you will never come up with anything original. There is a basic flaw in the way some policymakers have interpreted the idea of going back to basics to upgrade educational standards. They look at getting back to basics as a way of reinforcing the old Industrial Revolution era hierarchy of subjects. They seem to believe that if they feed our children a nationally prescribed menu of reading, writing and arithmetic, we'll be more competitive with the world and more prepared for the future. What is catastrophically wrong with this mode of thinking is that it severely underestimates human capacity. We place tremendous significance on standardised tests, we cut funding for what we consider non-essential programmes, and then we wonder why our children seem unimaginative and uninspired. In these ways, our current education systems systematically drain the creativity out of our children. Most students never get to explore the full range of their abilities and interests. Those students whose minds work differently, and we're talking about many students here, perhaps even the majority of them, can feel alienated from the whole culture of education. This is exactly why some of the most successful people you'll ever meet didn't do well at school. Education is the system that's supposed to develop our natural abilities and enable us to make our way in the world. Instead, it is stifling the individual talents and abilities of too many students and killing their motivation to learn. There's a huge irony in the middle of all of this. The reason many school systems are going in this direction is that politicians seem to think that it's essential for economic growth and competitiveness and to help students get jobs. But the fact is that in the 21st century, jobs and competitiveness depend absolutely on the very qualities that school systems are being forced to tamp down and that this book is celebrating. Businesses everywhere say they need people who are creative and can think independently. But the argument is not just about business. It's about having lives with purpose and meaning in and beyond whatever work we do. The idea of going back to basics isn't wrong in and of itself. I also believe we need to get our kids back to basics. But if we're really going back to basics, we need to go all the way back. We need to rethink the basic nature of human ability and the basic purposes of education now. There was a time in our history when the steam engine reigned supreme. It was powerful, it was effective, and it was significantly more efficient than the propulsion systems that came before it. Eventually, though, it no longer served the needs of the people, and the internal combustion engine ushered in a new paradigm. In many ways, our current education system is like the steam engine, and it's running out of steam rather quickly. This problem of old thinking hardly ends when we leave school. These features of education are replicated in public institutions and corporate organisations, and the cycle goes around and around. As anyone in the corporate world knows, it's very easy to be typed early in your career. When this happens, it becomes exceedingly difficult to make the most of your other and perhaps truer talents. If the corporate world sees you as a financial type, you'll have a difficult time finding employment on the creative side of the business. We can fix this by thinking and acting differently ourselves and in our organisations. In fact, it's essential that we do. The pace of change. Children starting school this year will be retiring in 2070. 
No one has any idea of what the world will look like in ten years' time, let alone in 2070. There are two major drivers of change, technology and demography. Technology, especially digital technology, is developing at a rate that most people can't properly grasp. It's also contributing to what some pundits are calling the biggest generation gap since rock and roll. People over the age of 30 were born before the digital revolution really started. We've learned to use digital technology, laptops, cameras, personal digital assistants, the internet, as adults. And it's been something like learning a foreign language. Most of us are okay, and some are even expert. We do emails and PowerPoint, surf the internet and feel we're at the cutting edge. But compared to most people under 30, and certainly under 20, we're fumbling amateurs. People of that age were born after the digital revolution began. They learned to speak digital as a mother tongue. When my son James was doing homework for school, he would have five or six windows open on his computer. Instant messenger was flashing continuously. His cell phone was constantly ringing. And he was downloading music and watching the TV over his shoulder. I don't know if he was doing any homework, but he was running an empire as far as I could see, so I didn't really care. But younger children who are growing up with even more sophisticated technologies are already outperforming teenagers of his generation. And this revolution is not over. In fact, it's barely begun. Some suggest that in the near future, the power of laptop computers will match the computing power of the human brain. So how's that going to feel? When you give your computer an instruction and it asks you if you know what you're doing. Before too long, we may see the merging of information systems with human consciousness. If you think about the impact in the last 20 years of relatively simple digital technologies on the work we do and how we do it, and the impact these technologies have had on national economies, think of the changes that lie ahead. Don't worry if you can't predict them. Nobody can. Add to this the impact of population growth. The world population has doubled in the past 30 years, from 3 to 6 billion. It may be heading for 9 billion by the middle of the century. This great new mass of humanity will be using technologies that have yet to be invented in ways that we can't imagine and in jobs that don't yet exist. These driving cultural and technological forces are producing profound shifts in the world economies and increasing diversity and complexity in our daily lives, and especially in those of young people. The simple fact is that these are times of unprecedented global change. We can identify trends for the future, but accurate predictions are almost impossible. For me, one of the formative books of the 1970s was Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. In that book, Toffler discussed the seismic impacts of social and technological change. One of the unexpected pleasures and privileges of living in Los Angeles is that my wife Terry and I have become friends with Alvin and his wife Heidi. At dinner with them, we asked if they shared our view that the changes now sweeping the world have no historical precedence. They agreed that no other period in human history could match the present one in sheer scale, speed and global complexity of the changes and challenges that we face. In the late 1990s, who would have accurately guessed what the political climate of the world would be ten years later, what overarching impact the internet would have, the degree to which commerce would become globalised and the dramatically different ways in which our children would communicate with one another. Some of us might have guessed at one of these, or maybe even two, but all. Very few have that kind of vision. Yet these changes have altered the way we conduct our lives. And the changes are accelerating. 
and we can't say how. What we do know is that certain trends indicate that the world will change in fascinating ways. China, Russia, India, Brazil and others will play an ever more dominant role in the world economy. We know that the population will continue to grow at unprecedented levels. We know that technology will open new frontiers and that these technologies will manifest in our homes and offices with stunning velocity. This combination of things that we do know, that more countries and more people are in the game than ever before, and that technology is in the process of changing the game itself as we speak, leads us to one inescapable conclusion. We can't know what the future will be like. The only way to prepare for the future is to make the most out of ourselves, on the assumption that doing so will make us as flexible and productive as possible. Many of the people you'll meet in this book didn't pursue their passions simply because of the promise of a paycheck. They pursued them because they couldn't imagine doing anything else with their lives. They have found the things they were made to do, and they have invested considerably in mastering the permutations of these professions. If the world were to turn upside down tomorrow, they'd figure out a way to evolve their talents to accommodate these changes. They would find a way to continue to do the things that put them in their element, because they would have an organic understanding of how their talents fit a new environment. Many people set aside their passions to pursue things they don't care about for the sake of financial security. The fact is, though, that the job you took because it pays the bills could easily move offshore in the coming decades. If you have never learned to think creatively and to explore your true capacity, what will you do then? More specifically, what will our children do if we continue to prepare them for life using the old models of education? It's very possible that our children will have multiple careers over the course of their working lives, not simply multiple jobs. Many of them will certainly have jobs we haven't conceived of yet. Isn't it our obligation to encourage them to explore as many avenues as possible with an eye toward discovering their true talents and their true passions? When the only thing we know about the future is that it will be different, we'd all be wise to do the same. We need to think very differently about human resources and about how to develop them if we're to face these challenges. We need to embrace the element. What is the element? The element is the meeting point between natural aptitude and personal passion. What you'll find in common among the people you've met in this chapter and the vast majority of the people you'll meet in the coming pages is that they are doing the thing they love. And in doing it, they feel like their most authentic selves. They find that time passes differently and that they are more alive, more centered and more vibrant than at any other times. Being in their element takes them beyond the ordinary experiences of enjoyment or happiness. We're not simply talking about laughter, good times, sunsets and parties. When people are in their element, they connect with something fundamental to their sense of identity, purpose and well-being. Being there provides a sense of self-revelation, of defining who they really are and of what they're really meant to be doing with their lives. This is why many of the people in the book describe finding their element as an epiphany. How do we find the element in ourselves and in others? There isn't a rigid formula. The element is different for everyone. In fact, that's the point. And we aren't limited to one element, by the way. Some people may feel a similar passion for one or more activities and may be equally good at them. Others may have a singular passion and aptitude that fulfills them far more than anything else does. There's no rule about this. But there are, so to speak, elements of the element that provide a framework for thinking about this and knowing what to look for and what to do. The element has two main features, and there are two conditions for being in it. The features are aptitude 
and passion. The conditions are attitude and opportunity. The sequence goes something like this. I get it. I love it. I want it. Where is it? I get it. An aptitude is a natural facility for something. It's an intuitive feel or a grasp of what that thing is, how it works and how to use it. Julian Lynn has a natural feel for dance, Matt Groening for telling stories, and Paul Samuelson for economics and math. Our aptitudes are highly personal. They may be for general types of activity like math, music, sport, poetry, or political theory. They can also be highly specific, not music in general, but jazz or rap, not wind instruments in general, but the flute, not science, but biochemistry, not track and field, but the long jump. Throughout this book, you'll be meeting people with a profound natural grasp for all sorts of things. They're not good at everything, but at something in particular. Paul Samuelson is naturally good at math. Others are not. I happen to be one of those others. I was never very good at math at school, and I was delighted to leave it behind when I finished school. When I had my own children, math reared up again like the monster in the movie that you thought was dead. One of the perils of being a parent is that you have to help your kids with their homework. You can bluff it for a while, but you know deep down that the day of reckoning is approaching. Until she was twelve, my daughter Kate thought I knew everything. This was an impression I was very keen to encourage. When she was little, she'd ask me to help if she was stuck with an English or math problem. I'd look up with a confident smile from whatever I was doing, put my arm around her and say something like, well, let's see here, pretending to share the difficulty so she'd feel better about not getting it. Then she'd gaze at me adoringly as I swept effortlessly like a math god through the four times table and simple subtraction. One day when she was 14, she came home with a page full of quadratic equations and I felt the familiar cold sweat. At this point, I introduced learning by discovery methods. I said, Kate, there's no point in me telling you the answers. That is not how we learn. You need to work this out for yourself. I'll be outside having a gin and tonic. And by the way, even when you've done it, there's no point showing me the answers. That's what teachers are for. The next week, she brought me home a cartoon strip she'd found in a magazine. She said, this is for you. The strip showed a dad helping his daughter with her homework. In the first frame, he leaned over her shoulder and said, what have you got to do? The girl replied, I have to find the lowest common denominator. The father said, are they still looking for that? They were trying to find that when I was at school. I know exactly how he felt. For some people, though, math is as beautiful and engaging as poetry and music is for others. Finding and developing our creative strengths is an essential part of becoming who we really are. We don't know who we can be until we know what we can do. I love it. Being in your element is not only a question of natural aptitude. I know many people who are naturally very good at something, but don't feel that it's their life's calling. Being in your element needs something more. Passion. People who are in their element take a deep delight and pleasure in what they do. My brother Ian is a musician. He plays drums, piano and bass guitar. Years ago, he was in a band in Liverpool that included an extremely talented keyboard player named Charles. After one of their gigs, I told Charles how well I thought he'd played that night. Then I said that I'd love to be able to play keyboards that well. No, you wouldn't, he responded. Taken aback, I insisted that I really would. Uh, no, he said. You mean you like the idea of playing keyboards? If you'd love to play them, you'd be doing it.
He said that to play as well as he did, he practised every day for three or four hours, in addition to performing. He'd been doing that since he was seven. Suddenly, playing keyboard as well as Charles didn't seem quite as appealing. I asked him how he kept up that level of discipline. He said, because I love it. He couldn't imagine doing anything else. I want it. Attitude is our personal perspective on ourselves and our circumstances, our angle on things, our disposition, our emotional point of view. Many things affect our attitudes, including our basic character, our spirit, our sense of self-worth, the perceptions of those around us and their expectations of us. An interesting indicator of our basic attitude is how we think of the role of luck in our lives. People who love what they do often describe themselves as lucky. People who think they're not successful in their lives often say they've been unlucky. Accidents and randomness do play some part in everybody's lives. But there's more to luck than pure chance. High achievers often share similar attitudes, such as perseverance, self-belief, optimism, ambition and frustration. How we perceive our circumstances and how we create and take opportunities depends largely on what we expect of ourselves. Where is it? Without the right opportunities, you may never know what your aptitudes are or how far they might take you. There aren't many bronco riders in the Antarctic or many pearl divers in the Sahara Desert. Aptitudes don't necessarily become obvious unless there are opportunities to use them. The implication, of course, is that we may never discover our true element. A lot depends on the opportunities we have, on the opportunities we create, and how and if we take them. Being in your element often means being connected with other people who share the same passions and have a common sense of commitment. In practice, this means actively seeking opportunities to explore your aptitudes in different fields. Often, we need other people to help us to recognise our real talents. Often, we can help other people to discover theirs. In this book, we'll explore the primary components of the element in detail. We'll analyse the traits that people who have found the element share, look at the circumstances and conditions that bring people closer to it, and identify the deterrents that make embracing the element harder. We'll meet people who have found their way, others who pave the way, organisations that lead the way, and institutions that are going the wrong way. My goal with this book is to illuminate for you concepts that you might have sensed intuitively and to inspire you to find the element for yourself and to help others to find it as well. What I hope you'll find here is a new way of looking at your own potential and the potential of those around you. Chapter 2. Think Differently Mick Fleetwood is one of the most famous and accomplished rock drummers in the world. His band, Fleetwood Mac, has sold tens of millions of copies of their recordings, and rock critics consider their albums Fleetwood Mac and Rumours to be works of genius. Yet when he was in school, the numbers suggested that Mick Fleetwood lacked intelligence, at least by the definitions many of us have come to take for granted. I was a total void in academic work, and no one knew why, he told me. I had a learning disability at school, and I still do. I had no understanding of maths at all. None. I'd be hard-pushed right now to recite the alphabet backward. I'd be lucky if I got it right going forward quickly. If someone were to say, what letter is before this one, I'd break out into a cold sweat. Mick attended a boarding school in England, and he found the experience deeply unsatisfying. I had great friends, he said, but I just wasn't happy. I was aware of being squeezed out. I was suffering. I had no sense of what I was supposed to be because everything academic was a total failure. 
and I had no other reference points. Fortunately for Mick, and for anyone who later bought his albums or attended his concerts, he came from a home where his family saw beyond the limits of what they taught and tested in schools. His father was a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force, but when he left the service, he followed his true passion for writing. He took his family to live on a barge on the River Thames in Kent in England for three years so he could follow this dream. Mick's sister Sally went to London to become a sculptor, and his sister Susan pursued a career in the theatre. In the Fleetwood household, everyone understood that brilliance came in many forms, and that being poor at math, or unable to recite the alphabet backward, hardly doomed one to an inconsequential life. And Mick could drum. Playing the piano is probably a more impressive signal that there's something creative going on, he said. I just wanted to beat the shit out of a drum, or some cushions on the chair. It's not exactly the highest form of creative signal. It's almost, well, anyone can do that. That's not clever. But I started doing this tapping business, and it turned out to be the make or break for me. Mick's epiphany moment, the point at which the tapping business became the driving ambition in his life, came when he visited his sister in London as a boy, and went to, as he called it, some little place in Chelsea with this piano player. There were people playing what I now know was Miles Davis and smoking Gitane cigarettes. I'd watched them and saw the beginnings of this other world and the atmosphere sucked me in. I felt comfortable. I wasn't fettered. That was my dream. Back at school, I held on to these images and I dreamt my way out of that world. I didn't know if I could play with people, but that vision got me out of the morass of this academic bloody nightmare. I had a lot of commitment internally, but I was also incredibly unhappy because everything at school was showing me that I was useless according to the status quo. Mick's school performance continued to confound his teachers. They knew he was bright, but his scores suggested otherwise. And if the score said otherwise, there was little they could do. The experience proved extremely frustrating for the boy who dreamed of being a drummer. Finally, in his teens, he'd had enough. One day, he said, I walked out of school and I sat under a large tree in the grounds. I'm not religious, but with tears pouring down my face, I prayed to God that I wouldn't be in this place anymore. I wanted to be in London and play in a jazz club. I was totally naive and ridiculous, but I made a firm commitment to myself that I was going to be a drummer. Mick's parents understood that school was not a place for someone with Mick's kind of intelligence. At 16, he approached them about leaving school, and rather than insisting that he press on until graduation, they put him on a train to London with a drum kit and allowed him to pursue his inspiration. What came next was a series of breaks that might never have occurred if Mick had stayed at school. While he was practising drums in a garage, Mick's neighbour, a keyboard player named Peter Bardens, knocked on his door. Mick thought Bardens was coming to tell him to be quiet, but instead the musician invited him to play with him at a gig at a local youth club. This led Mick into the heart of the London music scene in the early 1960s. As a kid, he said, I had no sense of accomplishment. Now, I was starting to get markers that it was OK to be who I was and to do what I was doing. His friend, Peter Green, proposed him as the replacement for the drummer in John Mayall's Bluesbreakers, a band that at various times included Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce of Cream and Mick Taylor of the Rolling Stones. Later, he joined with Green and another Bluesbreakers alumnus, John McVie, to form Fleetwood Mac. The rest is a history of multi-platinum recordings and sold-out stadiums. 
but even as one of the most famous drummers in the world, Mick's analysis of his talent still bears the mark of his experiences in school. My style, he says, has no structured math to it. I would go into a complete petrified mess on the floor if someone said, do you know what a 4-8 is? Musicians that I work with know that I'm actually like a kid. They might say, you know, in the chorus in the second beat, and I'll say, no, because I don't know what a chorus is from a verse. I can recognise it if you play the song because I'll listen to the words. For Mick Fleetwood, getting away from school and the test that judged only a narrow range of intelligence was the path to a hugely successful career. My parents, he said, saw that the light in this funny little creature certainly wasn't academics. It happened to Mick because he understood innately that he had a great aptitude for something that a score on a test could never indicate. It happened because he chose not to accept that he was useless according to the status quo. Taking it all for granted. One of the key principles of the element is that we need to challenge what we take for granted about our abilities and the abilities of other people. This isn't as easy as one might imagine. Part of the problem with identifying things we take for granted is that we don't know what they are because we take them for granted in the first place. They become basic assumptions that we don't question, part of the fabric of our logic. We don't question them because we see them as fundamental, as an integral part of our lives, like air or gravity or Oprah. A good example of something that many people take for granted without knowing it is the number of human senses. When I talk to audiences, I sometimes take them through a simple exercise to illustrate this point. I ask them how many senses they think they have. Most people will answer five. Taste, touch, smell, sight and hearing. Some will say there's a sixth sense, and usually suggest intuition. Rarely will anyone offer anything beyond this. There's a difference, though, between the first five senses and the sixth. The five all have particular organs associated with them. The nose for smell, the eyes for sight, ears for hearing, and so on. If the organs are injured or compromised in any way, that sense is impaired. It isn't obvious what does intuition. It's a kind of spooky sense, you know, that girls are supposed to have more of. So the general assumption among the wide range of people I've spoken with over the years is that we have five hard senses and a spooky one. There's a fascinating book by the anthropologist Catherine Lynn Gertz called Culture and the Senses. In it, she writes about her work with the Anglo-Ive people of southeastern Ghana. I have to say, I have a certain degree of sympathy for marginalised ethnic groups these days. It seems as though they're constantly being stalked by anthropologists, as if their average family unit includes three children and an anthropologist who sits around asking what they have for breakfast. Still, Gert's study is really illuminating. One of the things she learned about the Anglo-Ive is that they don't think of the senses in the same way that we do. First, they never thought to count them. The entire notion of counting them seemed to them to be beside the point. In addition, when Gertz listed our taken-for-granted list of five, they asked about the other one, the main one. They weren't speaking of a spooky sense, nor were they speaking of some residual sense that survived among the Anglo-Ive, but that the rest of us have lost. They were speaking of a sense that we all have, and that's fundamental to our functioning in the world. They were talking about our sense of balance. The fluids and bones of the inner ear mediate the sense of balance. You only have to think of the impact on your life of damaging your sense of balance through illness or alcohol to get some idea of how important it is to our everyday existence. 
yet most people never think to include it in their list of senses. This isn't because they don't have a sense of balance. It's because they've become so accustomed to the idea that we have five senses, and maybe a spooky one, that they've stopped thinking about it. It's become a matter of common sense. They just take it for granted. One of the enemies of creativity and innovation, especially in relation to our own development, is common sense. The playwright Bertolt Brecht said that as soon as something seems the most obvious thing in the world, it means that we've abandoned all attempts at understanding it. If you didn't guess right away that the other sense was balance, don't take it too hard. The fact is that most of the people I speak with don't guess it either, and yet this sense is at least as important as the five we take for granted. And it isn't alone among those we fail to consider. Physiologists largely agree that in addition to the five we all know about, there are four more. The first is our sense of temperature. This is different from our sense of touch. We don't need to be touching anything to feel hot or cold. This is a crucial sense, given that we can only survive as human beings within a relatively narrow band of temperatures. This is one of the reasons we wear clothes. One of them, anyway. Another is the sense of pain. Scientists now generally agree that this is a different sensory system from either touch or temperature. There also seem to be separate systems for registering pains that originate from inside or outside of our bodies. Next is the vestibular sense, which includes our sense of balance and acceleration. And then there is the kinesthetic sense, which gives us our understanding of where our limbs and the rest of our body are in space and in relationship to each other. This is essential for getting up, getting around and getting back again. The sense of intuition doesn't seem to make the cut with most physiologists. I'll come back to it later. All of these senses contribute to our feelings of being in the world and to our ability to function in it. There are also some unusual variations in the senses of particular people. Some experience a phenomenon known as synesthesia, in which their senses seem to mingle or overlap. They may see sounds and hear colours. These are abnormalities and seem to challenge even further our common sense ideas about our common senses. But they illustrate how profoundly our senses, however many we have and however they work, actually affect our understanding of the world and of ourselves. Yet many of us don't know or have never thought about some of them. Not all of us take our sense of balance or other senses for granted. Take Bart, for example. When he was a baby in Morton Grove, Illinois, Bart wasn't particularly active. But when he was around six years old, he started to do something very unusual. It turned out that he could walk on his hands nearly as well as he could walk on his feet. This wasn't an elegant sight, but it did get him lots of smiles, laughter and approval from his family. Whenever visitors came to the house and at family parties, people prompted Bart to perform his signature move. With no further cajoling, after all he quite enjoyed both his trick and the attention it generated, he dropped onto his hands, flipped up and proudly teetered round upside down. As he got older, he even trained himself to go up and down stairs on his hands. None of this was of much practical use, of course. After all, it wasn't as though the ability to walk in his hands was a skill that led to higher test scores or was marketable in any way. However, it did do wonders for his popularity. A person who can climb stairs upside down is fun to be around. Then one day, when he was ten, with his mother's approval, his grade school physical education teacher took him to a local gymnastics centre. As he walked in, Bart's eyes bulged in amazement. He'd never seen anything so wondrous in his life. There were ropes, parallel bars, trapezes, ladders, trampolines, 
hurdles, all kinds of things upon which you could climb, cavort and swing. It was like visiting Santa's workshop in Disneyland all at the same time. It was also the ideal place for him. His life turned in that moment. Suddenly, his innate skills were good for something more than amusing himself and others. Eight years later, after countless hours of jumping, stretching, vaulting and lifting, Bart Connor stepped onto the mat in the gymnastics hall at the Montreal Olympics to represent the United States of America. He went on to become America's most decorated male gymnast ever and the first American to win medals at every level of national and international competition. He's been a USA champion, an NCAA champion, a Pan American Games champion, a world champion, a World Cup champion and an Olympic champion. He was a member of three Olympic teams in 1976, 1980 and 1984. In a legendary performance in the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, Bart made a dramatic comeback from a torn biceps injury to win two gold medals. In 1991, he was inducted into the US Olympic Hall of Fame and in 1996 into the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. Bart Connor now facilitates the passion for gymnastics in others. He owns a flourishing gymnastics school with his wife, Olympic champion Nadia Komenech. They also own International Gymnast magazine and a television production company. Athletes like Bart Connor and Nadia Komenech have a profound sense of the capacities of their physical bodies, and their achievements show how limited our everyday ideas about human ability really are. If you watch athletes, dancers, musicians and other performers of their class at work, you can see that they're thinking as well as performing in extraordinary ways. As they practice, they engage their whole bodies in developing and memorising the routines they're shaping up. In the process, they're relying on what some call muscle memory. In performance, they're usually moving far too quickly and in ways that are simply too complex to rely on the ordinary conscious processes of thinking and decision-making. They draw from the deep reserves of feeling and intuition and of physical reflex and coordination that use the whole brain, and not only the parts of the front that we associate with rational thinking. If they did that, their careers would never get off the ground, and neither would they. In these ways, athletes, and all sorts of other performers, help to challenge something else about human capacity that too many people take for granted and also get wrong. Our ideas about intelligence. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD.